0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post. I'm
1: Tom. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. From
0: this Post. is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 23rd. Today, the intelligence reports that warned of a pandemic why the coronavirus is killing more men, and our shifting sense of time and space.
2: Going back to January... And into February, U.S. intelligence agencies were issuing ominous warnings about the growing danger of the coronavirus, which at that point had been largely focused in China and in Wuhan, from which it was spreading. And these reports were describing the virus with all of the characteristics of a pandemic.
0: Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. He's been reporting on what U.S. officials knew about the threat of the coronavirus and when they first started hearing about it.
2: Probably the first real significant data point that we know of is that on January 3rd, Officials were alerted to initial reports of the virus after the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had discussions with his colleagues in China. So uh, so we were alerted by some discussions that Dr. Redfield, the director of the CDC, had with Chinese colleagues on January 3rd. The Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, we understand, recognizes this is an issue and tries to get President Trump uh, essentially for a meeting or get him on the phone. We're told that he can't get through to Trump and speak with him about the virus until January 18th. So that is 15 days later. And and interestingly, when he finally did reach the president by phone, the president interjected to talk about vaping. And he was asking questions such as when flavored vaping products would be back on the market. So he doesn't seem to really be grappling with this. And then on January 27th, so we're still talking, you know, more than a week later, White House aides got together with the then acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, in his office to try and get senior officials to pay more attention to the virus. We're told that Joe Joe Grogan, who is the head of the White House Domestic Policy Council, actually argued that the administration needed to take this virus seriously or it could cost the president his reelection. The virus. They're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. Hope that's So true. as all of this is happening, the president is continuing to say publicly when he's asked about it by reporters or when he's tweeting, this is not going to be a problem. Rough stuff. I tell you, rough, rough
3: stuff. But I think it's going to work out good. We only have 11 cases and they're all getting better.
2: In any major crisis, and we should be clear, this is a national security crisis. You have to start asking the questions of who in positions of authority understood what was going to happen or had an inkling of what was going to happen. It's the classic question of what did people know and when did they know it? And this is not about assigning blame. It is very difficult to you know predict exactly what's going to happen from a pandemic. What we're trying to understand is these... Enterprises, these organizations that are set up in the government to give information and to give strategic warning to policymakers, that is what the job of the intelligence community is. What were they saying about this? What were they telling the president? And what was he doing with that information? It's so crucial to understand that so that we better understand how this administration, how the government prepared for this virus, because that's going to tell us, I think, a lot about how they behave going forward. And ultimately, the American people deserve to know how this government that is, you know, is set up by us and for us was actually looking out for our interests and what decisions people were making with this very particular stream of information that they were getting.
0: And do we have a sense of why President Trump was resistant towards viewing these intelligence reports as something to pay attention to?
2: You know, I think this is a big question In the whole broader story of the coronavirus, why was the president, not just despite these intelligence reports, but despite warnings from public health officials all around the world in the United States, why was he so resistant to this? And why was he so late to recognize the severe threat that it posed to the United States? We know that President Trump has been very resistant over time to some of the analysis and the assessments from the intelligence community. Um, He embraces things from them that he likes to hear, and he tends to downplay or castigate the things that he doesn't like to hear.
0: And you and I have had conversations in the past about President Trump's relationship with China and that the past few months have been a moment of this sort of tension between President Trump's attempts to, in some ways, cozy up to China and also the need from a public health perspective of being more skeptical about what's coming out of China in terms of news about this virus.
2: That's that's right. And what's interesting, too, is what we're told is that President Trump's own aides were directly telling him, you know, you have to be harder on China. You have to demand more from them. And the president resisted this, and he actually told aides that he believed that President Xi in China was providing him with reliable information about how the virus was spreading. That's despite the fact, to the contrary, from his own intelligence community. And this was a source of real frustration for his aides. He actually publicly praised China for doing all they were doing to contain the coronavirus. He actually said in a tweet on January 24th, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. So you see this relationship that the president is trying to preserve with the president of China, particularly rooted in the context of the trade war that's been going on for more than a year. And in these initial phases, when the intelligence community is saying China is not being honest and candid about the virus, the president is resistant to demand more from President Xi and actually does the opposite. It makes it sound like he is doing all that he can to possibly contain the virus and giving him credit for being forthright.
0: But also, this isn't just a White House issue. I mean, you're saying that these intelligence reports were given to both the executive branch and the legislative branch. So what do we know about what folks in Congress knew and whether they were taking this seriously and trying to do anything about it?
2: Yeah, that's right. So there was, importantly, there was a briefing by a man named Robert Cadlick, who is a senior official in the Health and Human Services Department and, and really kind of a point person or a key person in this fight against the coronavirus. And in early February, he's joined by officials from the intelligence community. He actually briefs the Senate and the House Intelligence Committees on this. And what we're told is that this was a very alarming briefing. You did not hear a lot of alarm coming from lawmakers. And notably, this Surgeon warnings coincided with a move by Senator Richard Burr, who was the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, to sell off dozens of stocks worth, uh, we think, at least about half a million dollars and possibly well over a million dollars. This has raised really serious questions about whether Senator Burr was hearing information that was alarming and taking advantage of that potentially. He has insisted that he did not, so we just didn't see from lawmakers or from the White House, frankly, the kind of alarm and sort of sense of purpose that we are only now just seeing as portions of the whole country start to lock down, bracing for a wave of infections.
0: So given the, the sense of dismissiveness that President Trump exhibited early on in the coronavirus outbreak, has that changed? Like, how is he responding to it now?
2: Well, we saw him really change his tune pretty quickly, about a week or 10 days ago, and he's been giving these daily briefings. And notably, the administration has developed what they call this 15-day plan, which kind of gives the basic core advice to people that we've been hearing. Wash your hands, stay home unless you absolutely have to go out, social distancing, this term and this concept that we've all become familiar with. And his administration has really thrown its weight behind a just massive, uh, unprecedented Stimulus plan, uh, we may end up spending two trillion dollars, ensuring that workers can keep their jobs, trying to get direct payments out to people. So he really has kind of mobilized on this, and has and has also very much tried to control, I think, the narrative. I will say though. Something is changing again in the past four or five days. What we've seen the president is almost kind of reverting to form here, where a good chunk of these briefings now is taken up by him getting into fights with reporters, saying their coverage is unfair. Sunday, he went on for a few minutes talking about how nobody thanked him when he gave up his salary as president and gave it back to the Treasury. This is the kind of banter and the interplay we're used to seeing from Donald Trump criticize the media, criticize his political opponents. Kind of airing the grievances. And there's a tweet actually that he put out uh, just recently that I thought was so interesting where he said, We can't let the cure be worse than the problem. At the end of this 15 day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. It feels like what the administration is saying is we're going to give this the 15 days. And then we're going to try and get things back to normal, which
0: is pretty counter to what public health officials have been saying, which is prepare yourself for this to be a thing that takes months and not weeks to get under control.
2: That's right. I mean, what public health experts have been saying is that you can expect to see these kinds of social distancing measures have to last for months and months if you genuinely want to get a handle Around the virus now, there are certainly people who have been saying, notably, and some economists have been saying, "Look, you run the risk of collapsing the entire economy if you just shut it down and make people stay in your house." And there's been a lot of questions raised about whether or not what we need to do is much more targeted testing of the virus and these clusters and tracing people back to the source of where they got it and trying to isolate them rather than kind of throw a whole blanket over the economy. But what the president is saying here is that it, you know, and what you've kind of been seeing him I think if you read between the lines inching towards is we'll do this big thing for 2 weeks and you know then we can start turning the corner on it That is not how this virus is going to behave. We're going to have to see much more rigorous measures and targeted testing. That's going to have to go on for months. And importantly, a vaccine is not going to be anywhere near ready for at least a year, or more likely a year and a half. So there's been sort of some very optimistic talk coming from the president. That's going to be a policy decision that he has to make. Is he ready to start lifting some of these measures to get the economy going again, but yet run the risk that many more people might get sick?
0: Jane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post.
3: Sadly, tragically, there are a lot of deaths from the coronavirus now. Frankly, from Italy,
0: we're seeing another concerning trend that the mortality in males seems to be twice in every age group of females. This should alert all of us to continue our vigilance to protect
3: our Americans that are in nursing homes. And in the countries that have had the most, China and Italy, and also in one country that is doing a very good job of documenting its cases, South Korea, We do see a pattern that is surprising, not necessarily expected, which is that men are dying more than women. It's been talked about less uh, than the other major pattern, which is that older people are dying more than younger people. Um, But both seem to be there in the data. I'm Chris Mooney, and I'm a science and environment and climate change reporter at The Washington Post.
0: And from the data that we've seen so far, is that just like reflective of the fact that more men are being infected with the virus or being exposed to the virus? Or does it seem that there is something specific about men versus women that that men are actually dying at higher rates?
3: It's men are dying at higher rates. So in Italy, the confirmed cases are skewed towards men as well as the confirmed deaths. In South Korea, however, the opposite Is the case. So the confirmed cases are skewed towards women, but nevertheless, even though there are many more cases in women, there are still more male deaths. So even there, even when more women are infected, it's still the case that more men are actually dying.
0: And why is that? Do scientists have an idea?
3: No, this just opens up a a lot of hypotheses. There's no necessarily right one right now, but the scientists that we interviewed told us uh, that it's probably a combination of nature and nurture. And if you do nature, essentially there are ideas uh, that women have better immunity thanks to some genetic differences that are going to be traced back to the X chromosome. But also there are all these, what I would call, nurture factors, factors in the environment, factors that involve lifestyles, behavior, choices that are making men more at risk or less healthy. And in the three countries that we talked about, we, you know, the demographic data are clear. Men die younger to begin with in all three of those countries. Men smoke more, drink more. They die more frequently of non diseases like heart disease between their age 30 and age 70. So, you know, there's something going on there as well with, you know, risks to men versus women that existed before the virus came along.
0: But it still sounds like these are all just educated hypotheses and, and there isn't really a hard and fast conclusion on on what the reason for the difference is.
3: Yeah, that's that's true. Or, or you might say that there's no massive epidemiological study that is able to control for a lot of factors and then figure out what the cause is. But yeah, some of the causes I described are, yeah, you could say they're educated guesses, they're informed hypotheses. I mean, the one that I think that is really well-informed and based on a lot of good scientific reasoning and even some research is the idea that smoking is playing a role, you know, that predisposes you for all kinds of worse health conditions. And it predisposes you for um, greater risk of getting this kind of viral infection. Uh, And the smoking rates in men are are a lot higher than women, especially in China uh, and South Korea. They're more equal in Italy, but they're still higher for men. So I, I think that there's a good reason to suspect that's playing a role. In terms of all the other causes, uh, you know, it's a complicated picture. But the data are real, again, for these three countries. Now, you know, we need to start looking at other countries and uh, see if that pattern persists.
0: Are scientists who are trying to look at this question of why there are these disparities between men and women who are dying from the coronavirus, are they running up against issues with the data and the testing and just having the right numbers to go off of?
3: To some extent, yes. So basically, each country is keeping its statistics a little bit differently, either by design or just because they're having trouble measuring the disease in their country. So, you know, I think, again, people think that South Korea's numbers are very good because they've been testing so much. And that's the country where, again, more women caught the disease for reasons specific to that country, at least so far based on their data but also more men have died so far. I I think that there's a suspicion certainly in Italy where the death rate appears very high from the statistics that they're not necessarily uh, actually documenting every case, and there's probably lots of mild cases that they're missing. The numbers definitely have problems with them. On the other hand, with China and Italy, these are the countries where you really had a large outbreak, and unfortunately you had a lot of deaths On the larger scale when we have these countries with big outbreaks. I think there's some assumption that probably some of the local factors are getting washed out, but I don't think that's proved. I think that we're reporting based on the numbers that we have and scientists are looking at the numbers we have, but there's going to need to be a lot of research, uh, epidemiological research that tries to use controls to figure out if there is any bias in these numbers. That's a key uncertainty about this.
0: Chris Mooney covers science for The Post.
1: For a while it felt like half the country was overreacting and half the country was underreacting, and this week it seems like we're kind of trying to pull ourselves more into some kind of alignment so that we are on a similar rhythm and are on the same page. My name is Dan Zak and I'm a reporter and feature writer for The Post. I think we're becoming more aware of space and less aware of time and each of us is experiencing the crisis on a different page or at a different rhythm. I mean in terms of space each of us now has this kind of radius of concern that measures at six feet you know the distance that a sneeze droplet can travel you know public health experts are saying you know six feet between everyone. We are kind of confronted with not only the inability to congregate, which is such a part of human behavior and even democracy itself, but we are able to see these photos of empty boulevards and empty sports arenas, this kind of pervasive emptiness, while our own physical space has become more occupied. You know, the kids are home from college early, your spouse is working from home, and life has become this kind of physical and mental calculation of how long can I be in this space with someone at home? How do I move about space when I go out in public? We've had to change how we greet each other. We've had to heighten our suspicion of each other or our trust in each other. And so I think we're in the process of figuring out how do we kind of arrange our lives spatially. In terms of time, we keep hearing how The U.S. is 10 days behind Italy, which gives us this sense of both displacement in time and also foreboding. Like we're stuck on a train track and we can hear the train, but we can't exactly see how close it is. It's disorienting. I think the question is what happens to us and how do we adapt to not having the same options for physical congregation? That we were still used to, even in this age of virtual connectivity.
0: Dan Zack is a feature writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Last week, we asked for listeners to share a voice memo with their experience during the coronavirus outbreak. Since then, we've received dozens of messages and we've been listening to them all. They're insightful and honest and, in some cases, very moving. Thank you to everyone who shared one so far. And you can still submit by sending a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.